mysteries are very intuitive in the sense that you prep a scene where there is a clue and that clue tells you where to go to find the next clue to do the next investigation scene. So that's a very clear prep cycle, very clear play cycle. And the only, the only difficulty you run into with it, the frustration that you run into with it is the fragility of looking for that clue, finding the clue and correctly interpreting the clue. And if any one of those three points of failure happens, if you don't look for it, if you don't find it, if you don't interpret it correctly, then you don't get to the next scene and the scenario breaks. Hello Rescuers, my name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue. Today is the third in a series of conversations I shared over the period between the seasons with some of the most creative gamers I know. My guest today is the single biggest influence on this podcast, a huge inspiration to me as a game master. We talked within a couple of days of receiving the 40th anniversary reprint of Call of Cthulhu 2nd Edition back just prior to the summer. He is, of course, the Alexandrian himself, Justin Alexander. Just in case you don't know, Justin is a freelance writer and the author of TheAlexandrian.net. His published works include more than 200 books, articles and reviews, including gaming supplements produced by Modifius Entertainment, Fantasy Flight Games, DreamPod 9, Atlas Games, Trolllord Games and Dream Machine Productions. Justin is also the host of his own YouTube channels entitled Advanced Game Mastery, Quick GM Tips and Let's Read 1974 D&D. Big thank you up front to Justin for coming back onto the show. I hope you'll find this as illuminating as I did. This is Season 11, Episode 7, Mystery with Justin Alexander. So, welcome back to Roleplay Rescue, Justin. Great to have you back. Thanks for coming. Well, it's fantastic to be back. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit today, uh, a bit more about scenario structures and specifically about mysteries, because I don't know how many times I have tried to run a complicated mystery, um, by which I mean a mystery that wasn't entirely linear and didn't have about three steps to it or something. Uh, it broadly fails. And so over the years, I've become really leery because I've personally become aware that when I run a mystery that's any longer than that or any more complicated than a couple of steps, what happens is the players miss a clue that's really important. And then you either end up sort of giving it to them anyway, the um, classic kind of make a die roll, okay, I'll give you the clue, or moving it around somewhere else so that it comes up again. And again, it's like, um, I think um, there's a, Jameson book, Game Mastering, he talks about using the clue bat. Mm. Hit them around the head with the <laughs> clue bat. You know, every single time they don't kind of get it, just restate the clue even more obviously. Bap, you know, um, so I don't know. There's got to be a better way of running a mystery, right? Well, and there's something to the clue bat, right? Like, I mean, one of the things, like the first thing to think about when you're thinking about running a mystery is the fact that when you're designing a clue, for example, that you know the solution. And so something that seems really obvious to you 
as the game master may not be obvious to the players at all because they don't have the same insight you have. So there's something you really do want to be, I think a very first step is to be very aware that, that you know the solution and they don't and everything else yeah. has to kind of flow from that understanding. Okay, so basically uh, don't overestimate their ability is the first thing to remember, <laughs> right? Okay, um, so the other thing that fueled this is I just got, I'm going to hold this up in front of the camera that no one else can see. Um, the Call of Cthulhu 40th anniversary edition of the second edition of Call of Cthulhu has just arrived uh, as really about two days ago, three days ago. And of course, I got really excited about, you know, oh, let's do some Cthulhu. And um, what I also did is I dug into the book a little bit and, I, and there's a few things that I'd like to sort of, um, ask you about in that um, really in relation to how vague Call of Cthulhu was when it came along but I think it's fair to say Call of Cthulhu kind of busted everything open on this front yeah I think that's absolutely true I'm, I'm jealous of you having that new box set I, I do not have a copy yet um, I do have a copy of the third of the original third edition floating around and I, I'm I, I clutch at that. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing to keep in mind when you're looking looking at that early call of Cthulhu, though, is the fact that, like you say, it did break it all open. It is it is absolutely people trying to figure something out really for the first time, and and, and trying to figure it out at a time when, to a certain extent, they aren't even necessarily a hundred percent sure what it is that they're figuring out. Um, like when Call of Cthulhu first comes out, the role-playing game as a medium is, is only barely half a decade old at that point. Um, and, the, and the idea of something being a role-playing game is even younger than that. Like we have this idea that like Dungeons and Dragons came out and it was like, oh, it's a role-playing game. But that actually took time to evolve. When D&D came out, it was a, a war game that was kind of different from other war games. And so it took a while for people to begin going, well, this is, there's actually something different about this that other games can also emulate. And then it takes a while to start beginning like, well, there's something here that, that we can do even more with or different things with. We can, do, we can do HP Lovecraft horror with this. And what does that mean? And how do, we, how do we design a game for that? And how do we design scenarios for that? So like that, that sort of rudimentary exploratory stuff is really interesting to watch people try to grapple with that. Um, and it's really easy to look back like 40 years later and be like, well, look at those guys. They didn't figure <laughs> it out. But we do, we do fortunately have the advantage of 40 years of people smarter than us uh, figuring it out, right? Like you were talking about, um, you were talking about like the, the idea of like the players missing a clue, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's been all kinds of efforts over the years to figure out what do you do when they miss the clue? And obviously, like you say, one, one thing is give it to them anyways, or uh, could you know what, actually roll again. <laughs> Or could somebody else roll? Yeah. Um, are all kind of out there. And that can be formalized. Uh, Robin D. Laws, when he designed the gumshoe system for his game, The Esoterrorist, which has now been used for a whole bunch of really fantastic mystery-based games uh, at Pelgrane Press, including uh, Trail of Cthulhu, a, a spiritual uh, successorism, right? Because Call of Cthulhu is still around, but a, a mm. spiritual, spiritual um, inheritor of Call of Cthulhu by Kenneth Height. Uh, and, and basically the way that, that Robin D. Law said we can fix that problem is we'll design a system in which you don't make skill checks to get clues. If you have the right ability and you use it in the right scene, uh, you will get the clue that you're supposed to have. Mm. But the interesting thing about that is, even though that's the most obvious problem you can run into, in my experience, you'll still run into a lot of difficulties because not finding the clue isn't the only way that the mystery can fail and can easily fail. Um, and part of that comes back to what we're talking about in terms of the clue bat 
and, and the GM trying to figure out or trying to make a clue when the GM already knows the solution. I mean, we've all, you know, anyone who's ever played a crossword puzzle knows that you're eventually going to, you know, hit on a hit on a clue for, for something as simple as a crossword puzzle, where the person writing the crossword's like, this reference is really obvious. Uh, but you as the person doing the crossword is like, I have no idea what they're talking about, because again, they know the answer. And of course, the solution in a crossword puzzle is in fact, the fact that it's a crossword, that in any given space on the, the, the puzzle, there's usually two different clues that are influencing what that space is. And so you, at the very least, for any given space, you've got at least two shots at that. And for any given word, you usually have a whole bunch of clues that are going to potentially provide additional letters, which are in some ways clues themselves. The more letters you have in the word, the easier it is to guess. And that's really, that when I began understanding sort of that principle of multiple clues all pointing at the same solution, that's the key insight, in my opinion, for making mystery scenarios work. And this is what you call the three clue rule, right? That's right. Yeah, the three clue rule is uh, is pretty straightforward. The three clue rule simply states that for any conclusion you want the PCs to make, uh, you need to include at least three clues. So, for example, let's say that you want, let's say that you want the the players to conclude that the murderer has red hair. For example, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, you want them to know that the murderer has red hair. Maybe because there's only one person with red hair at the mansion, and that will solve the mystery for them, right? Yeah. Well, okay. You could include you could include. Uh, now, let's say surveillance video of the scene of, of the exit from the building uh, where the murder was was committed. And you can see someone on there who has red hair. Well, that's great if the if the players think to check for video surveillance. And if they don't, they'll never find that. It doesn't even matter if there's a skill check or not. If they don't think, hey, we should check to see if there's any video of the exits of this building, um, you know, they won't find it. They might say, hey, is there any cameras in the room where the murder happened? And you'd be like, well, no, there's no cameras in the room where it happened. And then they're like, oh, well, <laughs> guess there's no video footage. Let's do something else. So that would be one clue, right? And they might miss that. Mm -hmm. uh, another clue would be like, if you search the room with like, say, an evidence collection scale, for example, you might find some red hairs. Uh, maybe there's red hairs actually gripped in the victim's hand. There mm -hmm. you go. There's another way of finding that clue. Um, there might be a witness. Uh, who who says that they saw someone with red hair leaving the building. So if you ask around, and there you go, those are three clues. And you can see how if you only had one of those, it's pretty easy to imagine that the, maybe, maybe the players don't think to look or they fail the skill check to get it or whatever the case mm. may be. But with three of them, you've got redundancy. You've got these backup plans in place. Mm. So when you wrote, around 2012, you were writing about game structures. And I know that last time we spoke a little bit about how you've evolved that thinking into sort of game structures and scenario structures. So uh, I think part five of that was on the subject of mysteries. And you introduced really this as the first, as I'll quote you, the first really successful post-crawl scenario structure in the RPG industry, being the mystery scenario. Um, why do you think it was... You know, given all the things we've just talked about, that mystery has become so pervasive. I mean, I can't think... I mean, these days, it seems to me that dungeon crawls, they survive to some degree. Hex crawls have largely gone away unless you're a part of the old-school Renaissance kind of movement. Um, but mysteries, they're everywhere, aren't they? Yeah, they, they really are quite pervasive. And, and I think... So one of the... What we talked about last time in terms of, of, of the scenario structures that we that we use to build these scenarios. And the fact that for the most part, we don't actually... Most game masters 
and most games don't really have scenario structures that they're designing towards. Dungeons and Dragons back in the day had the dungeon, told you exactly what to prep, told you exactly how to run it, made it very easy to do that. And this is one of the reasons why Mysteries became uh, so became the second big sort of scenario structure uh, in the, because of Call of Cthulhu mm-hmm. is that, you know, even, even with the limited guidance in some of those early products, it was still pretty obvious how you designed a mystery scenario, that you had a scene where you mm-hmm. could do an investigation and get a clue that would point you to the next scene where there would be a clue in that scene pointing you to the next scene. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a fairly easy and intuitive structure to kind of, of grasp and get you get your hands on. It's, um, it's what, what I refer to as a procedural structure in that like this, you know, if you talk about sort of artistic mediums in general or storytelling mediums mm-hmm. in general, um, you have a variety of different things that drive narrative. Character can drive narrative. For example, theme can drive narrative. For example, procedural is about actions. And in a role-playing game, those are incredibly useful because it's very easy to prep for specific actions, to give mechanics for specific actions, to ask the players to take specific types of actions, like investigating a crime scene, for example. Mm -hmm. And so in the sense of the overall, like, what do I prep and how do I run it? Mysteries are very intuitive in the sense that you prep a scene where there is a clue and that clue tells you where to go to find the next clue to do the next investigation scene. So that's a very clear prep cycle, very clear play cycle. And the only the only difficulty you run into with it, the frustration that you run into with it, is the fragility of finding that clue, to, for looking for that clue, finding the clue, and correctly interpreting the clue. And if any one of those three points of failure happens, if you don't look for it, if you don't find it, if you don't interpret it correctly, then you don't get to the next scene and the scenario breaks. The analogy I sometimes use is like a dungeon crawl is by default a very robust scenario in that if you are in a room in a dungeon, there will be exits leading to other rooms, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really obvious. It's incredibly difficult for the players to stand in a room in a dungeon and not figure out how to go to the next room, Mm -hmm. unless you make all the doors secret doors and now they need to look for the door they need to find the door and then choose to go through the door right Mm -hmm. and so you could design a dungeon like that instead of designing what we think of as a dungeon you could design a dungeon which is a linear sequence of rooms and in each room there is a secret door and you have to make a search check to find the door and if you don't make that search check then you don't find the door and you can't go to the next room and of course the longer the longer the sequence of rooms that you put in that dungeon, the less and less likely it is that the players will actually get to the end of the dungeon. Unless you, you know, unless you force them to look or automatically succeed at the check or force them to walk through that next door, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. And that 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 form of weird dungeon is actually how most mystery scenarios work, right? That you mm-hmm. have this, this room with something secret in it that you have to find in order to go yeah. to the next room. And as soon as you put in those terms, I think it becomes very obvious why so many people, as you say, get frustrated with mystery scenarios because they fail all the time instead of mm. succeeding effortlessly the way a more typical dungeon does, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's pretty obvious what a goal is for the players, like solve the mystery. And it's pretty obvious that if you have nowhere else to do, you look around for clues, right? So in theory, that's your, you know, what you do is you, wherever you are, you start looking for clues in relation to whatever the mystery is. For me, at the other end of this, playing as a, the game master, um, what I find difficult is you've got to like know what the end is and kind of work mm. backwards to build it. And I think one of the frustrations I have is, A, knowing that 
you know, these layers, I think the analogy used in Call of Duty Second Edition is actually the layers of the onion, you know, that you, the players are going to peel back. Um, what always gets me is with that analogy is that inside an onion is nothing. Um, you know, it's always, it's hollow, right? Right. Um, but also um, this idea that I've got to know what's in the middle and then sort of layer it and layer it and layer it out. And yeah, that sounds great in theory. Um, but every time I try to do it, I just end up with, yeah, the kind of, like I said before, a sort of a line really from this bit in the middle out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I read the guidance about mysteries, I, I you know, there's stuff about in Call about it being the the bit of like the branches of a tree where you kind of the, they start on the leaves on the outside and they kind of work their way into the into the middle. Um, which again, a, an analogy that seems kind of like perfectly reasonable but completely impractical. Um, so yeah, how do you do it? Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, not one, not one for simple questions. I see. No, not at all. No, not at all. Um, so like, I mean, yeah. So the, the, you know, the first thing you can think about, if we talk about the three clue rule that to, to any conclusion with the PCs to reach, you include at least three clues is that you simply, you could just graft that onto the simple linear structure we're talking about mm-hmm. that instead of, if we use the dungeon analogy again, instead of a room with a single secret door leading to another room, you instead have a room with multiple secret doors all leading to the next room. And then that room also has multiple secret doors independent of each other, all leading to the next room. And you can make a robust mystery that way. It's what what we refer to as the breadcrumb trail of clues where you kind of just follow the path along and that can work, but you do run into a couple of difficulties with it in my experience. First, um, you know, jam packing uh, three different clues all pointing to the same conclusion in the same scene can be can be difficult in its own right to come up with that many different ways of having mm-hmm. one specific investigation scene lead to one other specific investigation scene. Mm-hmm. And the other difficulty is kind of what you're talking about, which is coming up with that very specific path of how you get from the beginning to the end can be quite difficult. And, and part of that, part of that will certainly be um, like we, t- we talk about peeling back the onion. I actually think of it um, the, the analogy I like using is the, the matryoshka doll, like the Russian nesting dolls. Mm-hmm. And, and so often, like when I'm, and I do that, even today, I sometimes make this mistake where I sit down and I'm like, okay, so there's this murder scene. And then what do they find that takes them to the next place? And that's like taking a rushing nesting doll and like closing the first doll and being like, okay, how do I get the second doll inside there? And you can't, of course, right? Like you have to start from the inside, from the solution, and then backtrack the vectors back out. And that can be a weird way of having to invert your thinking. Hmm. Um, but the, the thing I found is eventually what was something I refer to as node-based scenario design. Okay. And the key to node-based scenario design is actually what I refer to as the inverted three-clue rule. So if the three-clue rule is for any conclusion you want the PCs to reach, you have to give them at least three clues. The inverted three clue rule says that as long as the players have at least three clues, they will reach one conclusion. Mm. And so those three clues don't all have to point at the same conclusion. You can have three different conclusions with one clue each. And the players may may solve all of those. Like one clue mm-hmm. can be enough to solve a mystery, right? And that's great. Um, in which case they have three different conclusions and they have all time, they have three different doors then that they can go through leading to three different places, right? So that's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But but the odds are as if you give them those three clues, at least one of those, if we go back to the crossword puzzle, at least one of those three clues will let them start writing 
letters into the crossword puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that gives them at least one place to go. It gives you it gives mm-hmm. you what you need for the adventure to continue. And then when they get there, you want to have uh, access to another set of clues that still gives them access to three clues total, and mm-hmm. that lets them continue having an opportunity to continue progressing through. Uh, through the scenario. So then the, the, so if you want to, it's it's a little bit easier with graphics, but if Mm. you think about, if you think about that, then if you think about the first scene of a mystery and the, you know, that's a corp, that's a bank robbery, it's the player's apartments have been broken into. uh, And and it's clearly a place where they need to investigate to find out what's going on. Um, And they find, they can find one of three clues. And so those three clues are going to point to three other investigation scenes. Mm -hmm. So if you go to one of those investigation scenes, what you want to do at that point, this is a very simple example of node-based structure. At that other scene, you can say, okay, well, there's going to be clues pointing to the other two scenes that Mm -hmm. were also accessible from that first node. And so now for each of those two nodes, you have uh, those nodes being investigation scenes. For each of those two nodes, you now have the clue in the first scene that points to it and a clue in the second scene that points to it. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, if you want to go for the most, sort of the most basic uh, node structure here, you also have a clue in that node that then points to uh, a- another node, a fourth node that we were previously unaware of. Um, from the first scene. And so at that point, maybe you can proceed deeper into the mystery, or maybe you move across the branches of the tree, to use that analogy, into those other two scenes. Because now, even if you didn't find those scenes in the first clue, you might have them now. Or if those clues in the first scene confused you, um, maybe this clue that you found in this scene will help clarify the clue, and the two of them working together lets you reach a conclusion you otherwise would have struggled with. Or maybe you have, like I said, back at the beginning, you actually had uh, you actually knew what all three clues meant. You just chose to go to this scene first, and now you can choose to go to one of those other scenes. And then each of those scenes also have clues pointing to the other two scenes in that sort of first layer of the of the node st- scenario, mm-hmm. and also a clue pointing to the final node of the of this very simple scenario. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at those three, then you look at those three center nodes. So first first node leads to three center nodes. And those three center nodes each have a clue pointing to our final node. And now at the end of that, you have three clues that are pointing to that final node. And we're back to the three clue rule where you have uh, you know those minimum three clues for the players to reach their conclusion, which in this case is whatever that final note is, which is in, in this extremely simple example, you know, where the bad guy is, where the murderer is, where the conclusion of the mystery story uh, is. Okay, so uh, I'm just using your analogy of the dungeon here. So I've got a room with three secret doors. And one of those, I take one of those secret doors, I find that, that door, and I take that door, it takes me to another room. And in there, there are two secret doors that lead to the places the other two secret doors from the first room went to. And then another door out to a third, fourth, even location. Um, so, yeah, and then I'm building out from there, basically. So um, what's great here, of course, is that those nodes could be kind of anywhere within your your world and your setting. They could even they could be, I suppose, people, places or even things potentially that it's pointing to, exactly. um, you know, that you go to and it sets up another investigation scene. So that's going to break down the linearity. And it's also going to allow the player's choice about how they follow up the clues, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then it, it, so it offers robustness in the sense mm. that now there's lots of different ways to succeed, yeah. which makes it more likely the scenario won't break. Mm. And then like you say, that choice is actually really important because now the scenario can play out in a lot of different ways. And mm. it's not just 
Like some people think this is about like, oh, well, it's a lot of like, it's like rolling dice. You can go randomly through it. <laughs> but oftentimes the clues and what they point to, um, there's usually context behind that. It's not like there's a clue saying go to A, but you don't know what A is. You know that A is is a, is a meth lab and you know that B mm. is the casino that the drug lord owns and you know that C is his personal mansion. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's a lot of context. Now the players can make strategic choices about what they want to do next. Mm. And then the other thing to really emphasize too is that that was a very simple sort of example where everything is perfectly balanced, where the, the first scene has clues pointing to three nodes. Those nodes all cross-reference each other perfectly mm. in, in symmetry with each other. And then the finale, you can have more nodes, obviously. Uh, mm -hmm. The other thing you can do too is break the symmetry. So for example, maybe the first scene has two clues pointing at one scene and one pointing at another. And then when you go to the, one of those two scenes, there's a bunch of clues pointing to the third one. Mm -hmm. And then the third one has clues and so forth. So you don't have to have this perfectly balanced thing. So this, the, basics, the basic technique of, of having that inverted three clue rule uh, gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of how you build that scenario. And then what I've discovered over years of using this structure is what's great about it is that because of that flexibility, you can use it to you can use it to sort of naturalistically model a game world and then have that have that reality of the game world uh, work as a mystery that you are exploring you are exploring the relations between people, places, and things mm -hmm. uh, in a way that that is the way that those things relate in the world. Because like if you think about that breadcrumb trail of clues. That's often you have to be almost artificial about it in terms of, well, I, I go to such and so who's involved in the conspiracy, but it's really important that even though he knows a bunch of stuff about the conspiracy, the only thing I can learn from him is the one scene you're supposed to go to next. That's often very artificial and poses mm -hmm. its own difficulties in terms of then needing to like limit the way the world works in order to make it work with this preconceived notion of the breadcrumb trail. Uh, mm. Whereas the flexibility of node-based design lets me say, okay, well, this, this gang guy has, has a casino and a mansion and there's a meth lab where he's making his drugs, right? To take, to take that silly example I just came up with. Mm. So he's got those three things. Okay, well, okay, I've got, a, I've got an initial scene. I know he has these three things. Okay, well, all I need to do now is like point clues at each of those things. And that becomes a much easier prospect than trying to figure out, I need a clue, but I don't know what it points to. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, so we, we talked, yeah, great talking about the three clue rule, which made a lot of sense to me the moment I read about it. So thank you for that one. And I, I guess that the issue I, I've always come up against with it is simply like, what can like knowing what conclusions I want the players to make. Um, that's that's a thing. I know this might sound really trivial, but actually I think that's a little harder sometimes to figure out like what do I need them to figure out? If, mm -hmm. you know, to, um, but the other thing is sometimes the players come up with like conclusions that bear no relation whatsoever to what you're doing, and then they go off on one, which is what players want to do. Um, and they go to say they go off running off to some place uh, that has no clues. What do you do in that situation? That's a great question. Uh, so I mean, I think there's a there's a couple of things. So one of the things about the three clue rule and no base scenario design is it often makes it less likely that will happen because when you have multiple clues those clues cross-reference each other. And I guess like mm -hmm. taking the crossword puzzle example, right? Like yeah. you might think, oh, this clue obviously means ad lib. And it's only when you do one of the cross cross clues that you're like, oh, it, it can't be ad lib because it doesn't match up. So I've got mm -hmm. to go look for a different solution. And the same thing happens in mystery scenarios where you have a yeah. conclusion you reach that you're like, oh, I'm definitely sure about that. But then you get another thing like, oh, these two don't fit together. So I need to figure out how to make them fit together. So mm -hmm. the three clue rule does actually 
reduce the frequency which which that happens in sessions in my experience yep. okay. but it will still happen because sometimes you only get the one clue and you make a wrong conclusion plus yeah. as soon as players reach a conclusion if it's a really cool conclusion uh they do like to hold on to that as tightly as they possibly can it's like a yep. drowning man holding on to a life raft it's mm-hmm. like i must i must not let go or i will drown my wife's solution to that whenever she's running any kind of mystery game is basically whatever the player suggests is solution if it sounds cool enough she just goes with it it just becomes a kind of okay that's good i'm just gonna dump that and just run down this road let's go with this and i think you know that that can be a very good technique and can be rewarding um i think that it oftentimes if the players figure out what you're doing in my experience it can be very unsatisfying for them Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of players who uh you know particularly when they're playing a role-playing game as opposed to a storytelling game they are very interested in you know experiencing the world as their characters and being in an Mm -hmm. exploration mindset not a content creation mindset Mm -hmm. and for those players in particular you can really they can really struggle if they discover oh i wasn't exploring i was actually just i was just making a mad libs that you were then filling in and then and then feeding the results back to me so it can be very powerful there certainly are times when i would say you know go for that if they've come up with a much better idea than what you have and you feel like everyone would be comfortable with that but i often find i often find for myself as well as a player i'm much more interested in discovering that i was wrong and now i need to figure out how to solve it like mm-hmm. i keep coming back to that crossword puzzle like part of the crossword puzzle solving experience is writing an ad lib and then being like oh that wasn't the solution i need to now solve this what i discover is a much more difficult uh, puzzle for me uh, like another example like uh, using word puzzles like wordle if if wordle if you typed in five a five character word in wordle and wordle's like yeah that was five letters good work you solved it uh, that would be less satisfying than having to figure out what i got right and what i got wrong and then working my way through it so i feel that way about it but so let's say the players do go off they are looking at something that is not the right place to go. Um, they they have they interpreted that clue wrong, and and they, and they may have perfectly good reasons for thinking that like oh we should go check the local newspaper morgues and see mm-hmm. if there's any articles about it. Or you know I bet you that I bet you that uh, street informant we talked to in the last adventure probably has information about this one, and he doesn't because it has nothing to do with his circle of influence or whatever. Mm-hmm. So when you have when you have that situation, I refer to that as a dead end. The the players are driving. Mm-hmm. Into a dead end, and there's no there's no through fare, there's no place to go from there, and there's no mm-hmm. reason to be there. And so you really have a couple of options uh, there. Uh, one is 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 what your wife does in terms of like saying, actually, it's not a dead end. Let's let's plow the highway through here and see where it goes. Yeah. Um, the second thing you can do is is basically drive past the dead end. Uh, and one of the things you have to do as a GM in role playing games all the time is pacing. And the key thing to pacing in role-playing games is that you have to identify uh, empty time, time when there's not interesting things happening and no interesting or meaningful choices being made. And you need to cut past that to the next interesting choice. We do this, we do this all the time. Like when the players leave town and they go to the dungeon, uh, you, you don't like describe every footstep along the way. You say, you know, maybe there's, a, maybe there's some wilderness encounters or the like, maybe there's a hex crawl component. Those are meaningful decisions, so the time mm-hmm. isn't empty. But frequently, it will, in fact, be empty. And you can say, you leave town, you journey for three days, and you arrive at the dungeon and you've mm-hmm. cut past that empty time, right? Same thing happens inside a city even. Like if, if, I, if I'm in a city in a role-playing game and I say, I want to head downtown, uh, I'm not anticipating the GM being like, okay, well, you drive to the end of the street and you can turn left or right or go straight ahead. Like you cut, those aren't meaningful choices. They are choices, but they're not mm. meaningful. So cut past them. Mm. And so when you hit this dead end in the investigation scenario, it's the same thing. The players are going there thinking 
that there's a reason for going there, but it's not, there's nothing there. And so what you want to do is, is very quickly frame up the fact that there's nothing there. It's empty time and then frame past it. Now, the technique here, the trick here is that there is a reason why the players are going there. Uh, they think it's important. And so you don't want to just be like, you were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, it's not, that's very effective. Like you, you could just, you could just literally say like, you're wrong. The adventure isn't here, pick a different path. Um, but that's not satisfying for the players. And even if it isn't your intention, it can often be interpreted by the players as, as you saying, there's only one way, my way or the highway, and you need to go find the railroad, even if that's mm -hmm. not what you're doing. Like, even if there is this huge mafia organization with labs and casinos and, uh, and all kinds of things going on. Uh, even though you, you, know, you could look at any of that, guys, like the whole the whole mob exists. You can explore mm -hmm. it any way you want to. And they're like, I want to go down to the sea village because I'm convinced <laughs> that the beach is where the story is at. Um, you know, even if that's true, that like you're not trying to railroad them. If you say that the players may fall into that mm -hmm. mindset. So there's a very simple judo technique that I will use, which is if, you know, I will say to them, OK, well, what are you trying to do there? And they will give some kind of answer. And all you need to do is find a way of repeating back to them what they just said and then saying, and you don't find anything. And there's like, a number of ways you can do that. Um, there's, a, there's a number of subtleties to this technique. So if they, if they go to the beach and I say, okay, what are you trying to do then? And it's like, well, we think that they must be selling meth uh, to the surfers at the beach. And I know mm -hmm. that's not true. Uh, I mean, there's a possibility, like, I hadn't thought about that, but sure, they're probably selling meth to the surfers. That would be an example of that highway going through mm -hmm. in a way that is completely logical within the scenario, right? Yeah. But if I'm like, no, there's, there's not selling, they're not selling meth to the surfers. That's not a thing that's happening. Yeah. I'll say, okay, great. Well, why don't you give me, why don't you go ahead and give me a charisma investigation check? Um, and and then they give me whatever the check is, and I I go, okay, well, you, you, ask, you spend the whole afternoon asking around. Um, there's a lot of weed, uh, but there's no meth being sold down at the beach. What do you do next? And it's that simple. You spent two sentences. You haven't wasted any time. You've kind of definitively told them it's not there. There's nothing to find. And mm -hmm. then they can move on to what the next thing is. Um, so that's a real simple way of doing that. You can also mm -hmm. disguise this a little bit. If the group is split up, for example, I often find you can disguise it a bit by cutting away. So they say, we're going to go ask around the beach about meth being sold to the surface and i say okay go ahead and give me uh give me that streetwise check and then i go okay and then sally what are you doing and i mm -hmm. do some stuff with sally for a bit and i come back and i say what was that streetwise check and then i just repeat back what they were going to do okay mm -hmm. yeah you spend the whole day asking around the beach uh about the surfers there's a lot of weed but no meth mm -hmm. and and one key thing here too is that there is a difference between saying um you don't find any information about meth at the beach and saying, yeah, there's definitely no meth being sold at the beach. One of those is a, you, it could still be happening, you just don't know. And the other is the successful check where I say, you definitively conclude that there's no meth at the beach. And that actually is actionable intelligence. It tells them something about the shape of the mystery. And yeah. so it's not just a complete waste of time. But either way, we're moving past it pretty quickly and getting on to the next thing. We're moving past that empty time. Nice. Right then. I was quite intrigued looking at Call of Cthulhu 2nd Edition that all of the scenarios at the back are location-based. Mm. And I kind of had this thought about, I guess the evolution of this is looking like people play dungeons and a bit of hex crawly stuff, and then they started doing investigations. And, I mean, the first one, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a haunted house. There's a madman who basically has, there's a house and some caves beneath the house. Mm 
which is sounding very familiar. Um, so to give those those kind of two examples, what I'm thinking of here is that is there an evolution um, that we saw in the gaming history that might be a useful tool for us as game masters as we graduate from perhaps doing location-based crawls um, towards doing investigations? Um, so I guess the short way of asking it is, is it okay to, or would it be quite useful to add some investigative stuff to your dungeon type games and sort of work towards more and more mystery elements? Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. And, and I think like, I mean, to, to deal with the, the Call of Cthulhu example, like you really are seeing there that like, mm-hmm. we, we prep to the structures we know. And so mm-hmm. those early designers trying to figure out what mysteries are, they know how locations work. And so mm-hmm. like, when in doubt, fall back on the thing that you know, works. I was actually having this yeah. discussion um, on my Discord server just yesterday. We were talking about running urban crawls and prepping your first like true urban crawl, not just urban mm-hmm. adventures, but urban crawls. Yeah. And someone was like, I'm, I'm really struggling with like, how does it all work? And I said, look, what you can do is to take a setting like Monty Cook's Tollist, for example. Mm-hmm. And when you're keying in how the urban crawl works, instead of trying to key in like novel urban content in the city of Tollist, there's a huge mega dungeon under the city and a number of smaller dungeons as well could have scattered throughout the entire city. So rather than having your urban crawl investigation actions in that, in that structure, point to stuff you're not familiar with yet, just fill it with dungeons. And so you do these mm. urban crawl activities, but what you find at the end of the urban crawl is a dungeon that you can then go in and play a dungeon. And you know yeah. you have that surety of, I know how dungeons work. Uh, and so that's, that's something I do recommend just in general. If you experiment something new, don't hesitate to put back in stuff that you know works. The other thing too is like, you, you know, you talked about graduating, but I, I think like a better thing to think about is about adding more tools to your toolkit. Like you don't mm-hmm. graduate to a screwdriver. You still have the hammer when you're building okay. whatever that screwdriver is needed for. Right. And, um, and so I think this is also true. Like when I talk about node-based scenario designs, we talk about nodes being people, places, and things. Well, the second thing on that list is places and places are locations. Mm-hmm. So frequently when I'm designing a node-based scenario, I am designing a, uh, that the node that you are investigating is often a small dungeon or yeah. uh, a building where you have to go in and perform a heist uh, or that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so 100%. And then you can also, like you say, you know, if you can also start from a dungeon and use node-based principles to, to link those dungeons together. Hmm. You know, if we go all the way back to old school play, this is something that was actually used to be put into the game procedurally. When you rolled random treasure in old school D&D, uh, one, uh, you know, 25% of the time, I think, you'd actually be rolling a, a treasure map that would be included in the treasure. And that treasure map would be designed to point you to treasure that was located someplace else in a different hex or a different level of the dungeon. And that's a clue. That's a clue pointing you to someplace else to continue your adventures. And that was just procedurally in there. And that's that's something you can really do uh, in any dungeon is you can include clues pointing to other dungeons. And so if you want to start with a very basic, like, how does this node-based thing work? You can make a node-based adventure of, of dungeons or a node-based campaign of dungeons. You have a dungeon, small dungeon called a five-room dungeon. In that five-room dungeon, include clues pointing to three other cool places to go on adventures. You go to mm-hmm. any one of those, you find another dungeon with three clues pointing to other dungeons, mm-hmm. and the whole region just interconnects with itself. And you can play it the whole, I mean, the primary function of the campaign then is the dungeon crawls you're familiar with, but there's this layer of putting the clues together to figure out where do we go next to get more treasure to, mm-hmm. to fight the bad guy. And you can do either way, like it can just be, it can be generic in the sense that here's a place where there might be some loot, or it might be that you are, you know, fighting evil dragon cultists 
and you hit one of their dungeons where they with an evil dragon cultists are doing stuff and the evil dragon cultists there are you know shipping cult paraphernalia to another dungeon there's a letter from a cult leader in a different location um and also there are uh, sacrificial victims who report that they were sold to the cultists from or shipped from the cultists from some other you know slave camp that the cultists are keeping so there you go there's three more uh cultist dungeon locations that you can go uh and explore and then of course you can also have those all have clues that eventually point to presumably in this case wherever the dragon is that the cult is worshiping mm -hmm. and that's that's the end of that scenario slash slash campaign the other most interesting I've had more success with with clues and investigation is actually um, enriching my world with background information, I suppose. Um, clues that allow players to come up with uh, form conclusions about what has happened before, what might have been going on, uh, those kinds of things, which I found a lot of my players get quite fascinated by. And then that obviously leads them to go and start thinking about the world that they're, act you know, they're active in in a slightly different way. Well, and it's it's a great way to get the players actively thinking about those elements. Mm. And then the, the act of having to work for the solution, even if it's the most mm. minimal amount of work possible yeah. uh, to solve that mystery that enigma of what was really going on with this mm -hmm. historical epoch or this weird document or where did this flag come from mm -hmm. um you know uh classic Dan brown stuff right yeah that uh whatever that is even the most minimal effort there makes them feel in a sense of accomplishment which then makes them mm -hmm. care about that element of your world as well fantastic technique yeah yeah, and and the other thing is it makes them start asking other questions, and then they start poking around. And it, what I find is it provides me a scenario for it because they start saying, "Hey, I want to, you know, you know, I don't know whatever it was, but you know that thing. That's where does that come from? Where did that come from? What you know, we want to know more about that. Let's let's go over there. We're going to go find out. So that can be quite exciting. The last bit I want to talk about a little bit is about finding clues. Um, I, I don't know. I've experienced a bit of weirdness around. There's a difference between in a skill-based system anyway. And, and, you know, Call of Cthulhu is one of the, you know, built out of Wearing Quest, one of the earliest of those, I think. Um, you have very clear sort of set, two sets of, of skills going on. One of them is about action. So I got my climbing skill or my, you know, my swinging skill or my punching people skill, or my hitting with a score to, you know. Um, but I've also got these weird investigative skills. Like I've got things weird things like um, look, you know, search skills or perception skills, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it's a little weird sometimes how you're going to use those, you know, in a scenario. I'm going to look around the room. Um, and what I noticed in 7th edition Call of Cthulhu is they talk about there being obvious clues and then hidden clues, obvious clues that if you just look, you're going to find, and then some layers behind that, um, which I feel probably you have something more to say about. So I'm going to just ask <laughs> you, well, you know, how do you handle this sort of stuff? Yeah, no, I mean, so one of the one of the advantages of the three clue rule is in fact it gives you the luxury of missing clues mm. and that sounds weird but there's actually some lovely texture that can happen as a scenario based on what clues the pcs find and which clues that they miss mm. and there's also something lovely about the pcs uh missing a clue continuing the investigation and being like well if this is true based on these other clues we found then we must have missed something back at the old house and they go back to the old house and they look and like oh my goodness it was here the whole time and there's something really satisfying about that emerging from play yeah. so those are all things there so like where seventh edition call of cthulhu is coming in from so you have call of cthulhu you have mm -hmm. trail of cthulhu by robin d laws and kenneth mm -hmm. height uh which is which is inspired by and responding to the way call of cthulhu worked and then you have seventh edition call of cthulhu which is actually responding 
to Trail of Cthulhu. So in Trail mm -hmm. of Cthulhu, you have these investigation skills that automatically succeed if you use them in the correct scene to get what they refer to as core clues, the clues mm -hmm. you need to proceed. Yeah. And in Trail of Cthulhu, you can make, you have a pool of points also associated with those skills and you can spend those points to get enhanced results, to find out more about that clue than just mm -hmm. the bare minimum knowledge information necessary or to find, um, or to find bonus clues in a scene mm -hmm. um, that would not be essential for the mystery to continue, but would be interesting information to potentially pull out. Yeah. And, um, and so seventh edition Call of Cthulhu is really responding to that with the idea that there are clues that you don't need to make a skill check to find. And I think there's, there's I mean, I so much to say like the, luxury of skipping clues is is i think really interesting and you shouldn't just give all the clues to the players in my opinion i think it's more interesting mm -hmm. to make them work for it sometimes um and like a skill check is the is the bare minimum version of look of working for it um you know knowing where to look and thinking to look for it are also more interesting ways of doing that mm -hmm. um so i think i think there is like those the, there are these three layers there is automatically finding the clue, the basic clue, and then the potential for learning more from that clue. Yeah, so I think that's true. The other thing along the same lines to think about too, or to understand is that there are, there are different types of clues. And so the way I typically think of it is that, is that there's, there's a specific type of clue, which I refer to as a lead. And those are the mm -hmm. procedural clues that we've largely been talking about here. These are the clues that move you through a scenario. So if you're mm -hmm. in a scene and you find these leads, those leads lead you to the other scenes where you need uh, to continue your investigation, They're the mm -hmm. procedural clues that move you through the scenario. And those are the ones that really need to like... Uh, honor the three clue rule and the inverted three clue rule in a scene so the players have enough information to keep the scenario moving. As long as the scenario is in motion, it's succeeding. And the minute when they don't know what to do next is the moment when the scenario begins to break and to crack, right? Mm. But there's another type of clue which points towards sort of scenario-based revelations. These can be things like uh, who the murderer is. Maybe, maybe there's not a procedural breadcrumb trail that leads you to the the murder suspect it's just a, a network of places to investigate the crime and some of the clues that you will find there are not these procedural clues they are connected to who the murderer is uh, maybe a more clear-cut example would be um you're investigating the dragon cult and uh there is a ritual that you need to know uh, maybe you need to know that they're going to perform this ritual on the night of the blood moon or maybe mm -hmm. it's a ritual that you need to learn in order to banish the demonic dragon uh back to back to the nine hills or whatever it is that it, that you need to do to like get rid of the the dragon demon who the cult worships right so whatever one that is knowing that ritual is not part of what leads you to another location to investigate. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's not a lead. It's not part of that procedural solve, mm -hmm. uh, but you need it. And so the cool thing about that is once you understand that distinction, you can focus on the structure of the investigation, which are the leads and then scattered anywhere throughout those scenes, you can include the three clues necessary to fulfill the three clue rule for learning that ritual, for example, mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever other revelation it may be that you need for that, for, for, for solving the mystery. I was going to say, so it's like finding the puzzle pieces or something kind of yes. spread around and then you get, yeah. the players get to assemble that bit by bit as they go, but they don't need all those bits to get to the next location. Exactly. Yeah. And once you understand that it becomes a lot easier to design those types of revelations and conclusions you're talking about, mm -hmm. because you understand that you, that it's not, part of the actual node structure it is sort of like spice that you add in there mm -hmm. a very essential spice but i guess spice is kind of essential bland meat's no good <laughs>
I have a terrible memory of Call of Duty from a convention about, I don't know, 15 years ago. My wife uh, came to the very first ever Call of Duty game. She was dead excited. Um, and we were playing this game and uh, it was the worst GM I've ever played with. Okay, so I'll just say that straight up front. But essentially, she went to the library to find an address. And the GM's uh, approach was, hey, what I need you to do is make a library use role. Um, which her character then proceeded to fail. And, of course, at that point, it was like, oh, you failed your role, you don't find out the information, you can't find the information in the library. Despite the fact, I think at the time, the situation was one of those things where it could have been on a letterhead in anything, you know, like really simple, easy thing to find. And she was like really frustrated by the fact that she had to make a flipping role to find something that was so flipping obvious. But then it would fail and she wasn't allowed to go down that route and get that clue. I have always feared that situation in my, you know mystery scenario that I'm running. Um, that thing where you say to someone, "All right, yeah, you need to find the clue," or you're looking for this clue, and they they fail their role, so they don't get it, and yet it seems ridiculously like silly to have asked them to make the role. And I guess the solution is don't ask them to make the role, but that's the what I would say, you know, first up role, if it's like that straightforward, it's a case of, right, you go and you look in a thing and you find the address and that's that, thank you, well done. Um, but is there a, a nuance between, because I, I sometimes wonder where, you know, how do you decide when a role is appropriate and when a role isn't? There is, there is absolutely, I mean, an entire art of rulings that extends beyond mysteries, right? That determines yeah. when, when you roll and when you don't, right? I mean, my, my rule of thumb for, for rolling uh, the dice should be that. I mean, the first thing is, I think, just in general, default to yes. If there's no yep. reason to say no, mm -hmm. then say yes. And in this okay. case, like, you know, if, if, if it seemed obvious to everyone that, like, this should be easily accessible information um, at the library, or like if it's a modern day scenario, I'm like, I'm going to mm -hmm. Google the capital of England. Yep. Well, you know, I'm going to find it. Like, that's just the way Google works, right? Like, there's no way for me to fail that check. So don't call for a check. Tell me it's London. Computer use check, Justin. Computer use check, come on. <laughs> computer use check, yeah. Like, <laughs> like you know, so like that's the first thing. It's like if there's no reason to call for a check, just say they succeed. If you mm -hmm. if you walk across the street, you walk across the street. You don't trip and fall and die on on the yellow line, mm -hmm. um, unless you know you're trying to run across a highway at rush hour. You know, like there's there's, mm -hmm. there's reasons to make checks, right? But on the flip side, there is reasons to make checks, and obviously we have skills on the character sheet for a reason, and players want to roll their skills that's why they mm -hmm. put character points into them or level them up or whatever the case yeah. may be so you don't want to go to like they, the skills are meaningless because you will always automatically get the thing you want unless the game's designed for that you know like all kinds of variables here but with all that being said uh the you know be okay with failure because i think one thing too is that a lot of times i think players get frustrated with that because they've had so many bad experiences like you and i have had uh, like your wife has had with these scenarios where, well, I failed this check. I didn't get the clue. I know that that clue is the only way that we're not going to just be frustrated for the next two hours, not solving yep. this mystery. Um, once based on my experience running games with, with the clue rule with no base scenario design, once my players learn, Oh, like a failure here is not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. It becomes much more like combat where if you roll a combat roll and you miss the orc, like, it's not like, well, that's it. I guess we've lost the whole fight. Like it's not the way it works, right? <laughs> so you can build that trust as well and it becomes less significant. Mm. All those caveats aside, 
what is the middle road? And the middle road is, is a technique uh, called failing forward. Mm -hmm. And basically what you say is, okay, you're going to give me a check. I know that no matter what, you're going to succeed on this. The question is, uh, how, how well are you going to succeed and or uh, what are the consequences that you may suffer while succeeding? Mm -hmm. uh, and to use a non-mystery non example that's very typical, uh, if you're picking a lock, the question may not be, do you pick the lock or not? You are a master lock picker. You're going to pick the lock. The question is, do you pick the lock with or without consequences? And so if you succeed on the check, you succeed. There are no consequences. If you mechanically fail on the check, you succeed. You open the lock, but there's some consequence. Your lock picks break off in the lock. Uh, a guard comes around the corner and spots you. The security camera spots you. You set off an alarm. Like there's any number of potential, or, or you just spend a lot of time that you didn't have. Like it took you half an hour to pick that lock instead of five minutes um, when time is relevant. Uh, and so all of those things, all of those things are sort of a way of doing that. And so if the, if the important question is not, can you do this? Because obviously you can walk across the street, you can find the capital of London, you can pick that lock. Then the interesting question is, are there any consequences in doing it? How long does it take you to do it? And the like. And so that's basically the technique you can use when people are searching for clues is um, uh, maybe you find the blood stain. Uh, but you end up contaminating it. So mm. you know there's blood here, but you won't be able to do any additional testing on it or it won't be admissible in court. Mm. Um, or it takes you so long that by the time you find the blood stain, I'm not sure where this blood stain is hidden per se, but in this example, <laughs> but you find the blood stain, but as you do so, you hear the door open downstairs and the people who live here have come back. You need to get out right now. That's all. Your investigation is done here for the moment, unless you fight them. You know, like there's a bunch of options still, right? <laughs> but um yeah, feeling forward. Right. Thank you for that. That's um, yeah, good stuff. I guess when in our you know, her example, it might have been nice if she'd found the flipping address, but like got caught by a security guard or something and had to explode away of it. Anyway, right. There's a lot there, isn't there? There's an awful lot in this mystery thing. So we've talked about uh, the three clue drill, node-based scenarios. We've talked about how to scatter your clues around and link them together, the two types of clue, the leads and the stuff that's like extra color, if you like. And we talked about like how to handle some of those adjudications and rules with the mystery. Is there anything else that you can think of we've missed that was worth mentioning? Yeah, I'll, I'll say two things, I think, mm -hmm. again, on the subject of clues. There's so much we could dive into. Um, and if you want to learn more, visit my website. Uh, but there's two things. There's two things I think are useful to, to say. Um, the first is uh, proactive clues, mm -hmm. and proactive clues are basically clues that come looking for the PCs. And when mm -hmm. I'm designing a mystery scenario, like mo most most clues are static clues. You have to go to the place, look for them, and find them. Right, mm -hmm. and they exist in that place. Uh, proactive clues, like I say, ones that come looking for you. And like the easiest example of this is the old Raymond Chandler example. If you aren't sure what, ha what should happen next, a guy with a gun kicks down the door. Mm -hmm. And then the guy with the gun has a matchbook in his pocket with an address on it or a mysterious note or the ID in his wallet tells you where his home address is and you can go check that out. The idea mm -hmm. is whatever this proactive element is that comes looking for the PCs, they're carrying one or more clues that can get the PCs back on track and point them towards a place to continue their investigation. Mm -hmm. And what's great about having these proactive clues, and I try, like I, said, I try to include at least one when I'm designing a scenario. And the reason for that is it's such a flexible tool. Mm -hmm. At any point where I feel like the players are 
uh, are struggling, I can have the guy with the gun kick down the door and come in and the players can deal with that. First off, combat scene, awesome. That gets the energy of the table back up. We're accomplishing things. We took out that guy. And then B, there's a whole new vector for me to deliver clues to them that will get them back on track, hopefully, or just enhance mm-hmm. their investigation in some other way. And so that's a very useful technique. I guess you could use that to maybe excite the dead end occasionally as well. Absolutely. Yeah. If they're down at the beach and that's when that's when the 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 meth head assassin shows up to hit them. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that no. would absolutely be a great way of, uh, of enhancing those dead ends. And then the the other thing, so proactive clues, useful to like just have one of those in your pocket for the scenario. Um, and then the other the other thing to think about too is, is what I actually refer to as um, as reactive clues. And reactive clues are kinds of things that are just exist in the cloud, so to speak. A good example of this is actually is actually what, what your wife experienced, which is I want to go check out the library and see if there's mm-hmm. any information there. And so these reactive clues, so if you think about proactive clues as being the clues that come looking for the PCs, reactive clues are the ones that the PCs have to go looking for. There's yep. no procedural leads that are pointing the PCs mm-hmm. to go to the local newspaper and look things up, usually. Um, yeah. but, but that's something that PCs could do. And this is actually something called Cthulhu very early on has done a good job of is talking about reactive vectors for delivering clues like like the newspaper use uh, the library use uh, role for example having yeah. library use as a skill on the character sheet tells the players is a cue for the players that if all else is lost you can go to the local library and look around and the scenarios yeah the scenarios are lovely because they have this bit about the the corbett house for example in the horror you know you've got like the map and the keyed up thing and all the details and then you've got clues in this four or five paragraphs of if it goes to the Boston Library, at the Boston Globe offices, at the police station, and there's a darkened chapel somewhere as well in town. And all of those locations, you know, have information. But as you mm-hmm. said, you you don't necessarily get pointed to them. Right. And there's actually a whole section in early Call of Cthulhu rule books and modern Call, Call of Cthulhu rule mm-hmm. books that talks about these are the things you can do. And, and there's a big prominent section that talks about going to the newspaper, which mm-hmm. is actually a really fascinating thing from a design standpoint, because uh, Trail of Cthulhu, that game from Pelagrim Press, Spiritual mm-hmm. Air, um, doesn't include that, that explicit discussion about go look for information in local newspapers. Mm-hmm. And so I've had the interesting experience where uh, if I run a Trail of Cthulhu scenario for people who have played a lot of Call of Cthulhu in the past, mm-hmm. uh, those Call of Cthulhu players in Trail of Cthulhu will go to the local newspapers and look for information. Mm-hmm. But people who have only played Trail of Cthulhu and not with people who've already demonstrated to them the go look at newspapers solution, if they've only played Trail of Cthulhu, those players never go looking for the newspaper because why would you? Like there's a, there's a, there's, you know, if you think about it from a practical metagame standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to go check the newspaper. Like what are the odds the GM prepped something for the newspaper, right? <laughs> uh, so you, you do, when you have those reactive clues, you have to set the groundwork for it and kind of let the players mm-hmm. know this is a default action you can take. You can always go check mm. the newspapers. And maybe not every time will there be something there. Mm. Uh, and maybe sometimes you'll fill your library use role. Uh, but, um, uh, but, but you know, if, if you prep that, then, then, and then you will know that you should prep some of that, that content there for them to go looking for. Um, mm. Yeah. And it rounds it out, basically. Yeah. So we, we have um, the know what they have to, that what they're looking for, the answer is at the end and work backwards. For every conclusion you want them to make, come up with three clues. Scatter those clues across a numerous bunch of different people, places, or even maybe things and 
then once you've got that structure in place, you can think about having a, a proactive clue that's going to come and mess with the players. And you can think about some reactive things outside of that structure. If the players choose you that they can find extra information and that gives us an entire structure for an investigation. Fabuloso. And I, and I think, I think you and your listeners will both find uh, much more satisfying mysteries at the end of that design road. Excellent. Of course, I'm going to point everybody to your blog and um, there's a whole raft of stuff there for people to read, which I've been working my way through over a year. I keep coming back to over and over actually, because it is, I think it's actually quite hard to learn to use some of these tools. Um, and it's easy to forget like little things that you can do. And I mean, like the reactive, the reactive clues are quite a good example of that where you can easily forget that, leave that out. So it's not part of the procedural structure. So not necessarily need it, but if I do it, it really makes the thing richer. Um, so yeah, loads to go and see there. And I'll point people to that through the show notes. Um, any last words, Justin, on this topic? No, I guess the one thing I'll say is if you, if you do go to the website, uh, look for an article called uh, The Five-Node Mystery, mm-hmm. which is a very simple recipe for applying many of these lessons in a very simple package with a step-by-step guide of how to get that first mystery scenario, that first node-based mystery scenario uh, that, like I say, will let you practice a lot of these techniques and then see them in play very quickly. And it's got graphics. It's got graphics. I'd be like, oh, that's what that guy was talking about. Yeah, this whole time. Uh, half an hour trying to get my head around that idea. No, Look great. Look at the Thanks. arrows. That's amazing. <laughs> Justin Alexander, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. I hope you'll come back again sometime else and we'll talk about another thing. But um, in the meantime, thanks. Thank you so much. And absolutely anytime. Big thank you once again to Justin Alexander for coming and sharing his techniques and advice with us. I'll stick the link to both the alexandrian.net blog, Justin's YouTube channel, and his Patreon in the show notes. It's all good stuff. Thank you once again to John from Tell of the Manticore for the Roleplay Rescue theme music. Thanks also to all the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Most of all, thank you to you for showing up and listening i really hope you found it illuminating my name is che webster this is roleplay rescue see you again next time game on